The Third Men Podcast is a fan-made, not-for-profit, just-for-fun celebration of Jack White and is in no way directly affiliated with Third Man Records or the man himself. For the definitive history of Jack White and his music, please consult your local Jack White. And for everyone else looking for a home, you found one here, in a place so seedy. Enjoy! Charlie. Yep, get lower it, lower it down. Yep. No, 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 careful, careful, careful. No, you don't want to knock that beam over. That's structurally James. I'm so happy you're here. I I need I if you could just yeah. give me a hand. Charlie is lowering this beam in this place that is it's on a structurally unstable pillar. And yes, no, Charlie, God damn it. No. Char Paul, firstly. It's dangerous to have your cat doing this for you. I did, he, I, he really shouldn't be trusted with any structural support system. <laughs> yeah, it was a real, over, right, real oversight on your part. Too far. It's too far. It's definitely too... Charlie, Charlie. Charlie, hold up. Jane. Hold up one second. Paul, you called me over here saying that you had milk and cookies for me. I was really excited. I drove... I drove 5,000 miles to see you for these milk and cookies. I appreciate and, that. And what I see here is a construction project that you need help In with. In full candor, that was a lie. I need you to install a toilet for me. Um, now, the, the toilet is going to go on the second floor, and I'm going to go ahead and... No, Charlie! That is too low! You're going to want to raise that Very a bad bit. cat. I'm going to also, full disclosure, I've been eating nothing but sawdust for four days. Wow. Okay. That's unhealthy and probably poisonous that's why i need the toilet installed very desperately james i have mm. what can only be described as a woodshed in my colon <laughs> every time you fart just dust clouds <laughs> that's too far charlie james do you know how to operate any kind of uh, how to operate a, uh, one of them big cats are you talking about your cat? No, like the big machine, or... you know, the one that... Ah, man, I really should have just yeah. hired... I really should have hired an architect Anybody. and a construction crew to do this, but I thought I could get it done on the cheap. Yeah, you got a, a feline, yeah, and uh, your brother, whom you lied to all, to get his help, <laughs> because you knew that he wouldn't. It was such a mistake. James, I do want to ask you one question. It was a big mistake. Uh, James, listen. Yeah, the, I, I, the, look, I'm knee-deep in plumbing supplies right now. What do you need? Let's build a home. <laughs> oh. 
Come on. All right. It was good. Come on. <laughs> Come on. He's keep, he's keep going. <laughs> there are monkeys on the bed area. Welcome to the Third Men podcast. That was a reference to a song on the album we're talking about. This is a Jack White History podcast. I am your co-host, Paul Kaminsky. And I'm your chief engineer uh, and construction advisor slash co-host, James Kaminsky. And as we said, this is a Jack White History podcast where we go over Jack White albums and films and music and all that stuff. And James, this week we're doing part two to our episode, which is the album analysis and review of the White Stripes sophomore release, Distill. Part two, or as the Dutch would say, part twee. Okay. Uh, because I just looked up two in Dutch, and it's twee. And Good to know. Dutch, for those of you who don't know, is important because the style movement is a, a Dutch art movement and also the album title of this here White Stripes album. And Paul, I am so excited to get into part twee of this album. Uh, I would love... <laughs> To see what new information you've dug up to put into this home that we are here building. Yeah. Uh, well, hey, I'm excited too. And, you know, we were going to try and do this in one episode, but it was just too damn long, James. These kids are just too damn long. Yeah, there's some long boys in there. Um, <laughs> let's get to this episode. Yeah, James, the uh, steel, the style, however you want to pronounce it. And admittedly, there are a few ways to do so. I've heard the steel more than anything else so that's where i'm going with here but i did see some discussion on our facebook and twitter about how exactly you do pronounce this thing i'm pretty sure it's to steal at this point and i've heard jack sort of pronounce it as such although it varies this is uh, our family's house we grew up in and it's uh we do a lot of recording here, too. We did our second album, Distill, here at this house. It's notoriously hard to pronounce, or as the Dutch would say, moeilijk et te spreken. Okay. <laughs> at Tanagra. Very good. <laughs> anyway, however you want to pronounce it, that is the second album by the White Stripes, and it came at a very tender time in the group's development. They were just sort of becoming famous, at least in local circles, and Jack and Meg were at a, at a crossroads in their own personal relationship. And for those of you who didn't listen to the last episode, we went over the background of what led into the record. We talked about the recording of the record, the cover, the title, things like that. So... I'm just going to stop you right here. If you haven't listened to part one, you should probably go do that. It's ridiculously long for mm. some reason. I think our longest episode to date, actually, clocking in at a cool two hours, nine minutes. Yeah, just under the previous episode, okay. which I think was two hours, 12 minutes. So, yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, Woof. whatever. Woof. Just a couple of long boys over here. But uh, anyway, we're going to get to the rest of the uh, the tracks. Uh, last week, we got up to uh, track five, and we're going to kick it off here, Death Letter, in a moment. But, James, before we get... To all of that. Uh, hold on. Hold on. If you're programming it to say something in Dutch. Is er iets dat win moten stoppen? <laughs> or, as the English would say, is there something we should stop doing? Uh, no. Wait. <laughs> is er iets dat we moten gaan rücken? Yeah, that one. <laughs> Or as your American counterparts might say, is there something we should start smelling? Yes, James. It's. I think I smell a fact. Oh! It's the most astounding fact. The most astounding fact. The most astounding fact is the knowledge. 
I think I smell a fact is the portion of the show in which we find something out in the real world from either the listeners or through our own research uh, about a previous topic or about something we've previously gone over. And mm-hmm. uh, in this segment, instead of doing an entire episode about it, we decide to uh, to cram all that information into this little segment here at the beginning of the show to let you guys know what we found out. Yeah, there's a couple here. They all actually, funnily enough, come at us courtesy of our fact checker extraordinaire, uh, third woman in spirit every week, Callie Durga. And the first one is actually a was real time corrected for us last episode, but I was able to mm-hmm. put it into the show when we were talking about the song Little Bird. We dwelled a lot in the analysis of that song on to steal as being a uh, possibly a reflection of possessiveness when it comes to relationships and things like that, which we didn't attribute to Jack specifically necessarily but uh, which is a, a common thread for a lot of blues songs and things of that nature so for those of you unfamiliar little bird is about how somebody's trying to keep somebody caged up so that they can control them essentially and it's a, possibly a, in a romantic nature but james as we talked about with Callie durga in our third woman segment that song specifically has a lot to do with saint francis of assisi uh, we are going to get into that a little bit more in the future but we wanted to point that out there that is for any of those of you wondering that is why in the middle of the episode there was that like jack introduction to the song where jack talks about saint francis without any explanation there in two and so that is the purpose there yes Again, courtesy of Callie. This is something we posted to the Facebook group. We were posting, uh, we talked about the front cover a lot. We didn't really talk about the back cover of De Steel. On the back cover, it features an object which, honest to God, I didn't know what it was, so I didn't even talk about it. I just thought it was some weird art thing. But as Callie points out, it is sort of like this box thing that's got like De Steel ish looking art on it. That thing is called a triple tremolo. Yeah. Yeah. The triple tremolo. James, do you know anything about this? It's something Jack's brother made for him, I believe. It's a speaker that has like, it's got like a spinning peppermint candy in it, and it's it's all distyled up. Got lots of, you know, red and, and white and black all over it. And uh, it's an interesting little art piece um, that Jack used to take up on stage with him. I believe, and uh, it's it's an interesting looking thing. Yeah, I mean that's that's really close. I mean uh, that's basically what I'm looking at here. Uh, Callie shared this article uh, from Stripespedia again, a resource we often use on the show. But according to Stripespedia, the triple tremolo is a mysterious, seldom seen speaker cabinet designed and constructed by Jack White and wired by Johnny Walker. Ah who played slide guitar all over the White Stripes' first album, and uh, who is a uh, Soledad brother. Hmm. It has three Leslie-type revolving speakers, and the peppermint in the viewing window is mounted on a speaker that revolves at slow and fast speeds. It is believed that the triple tremolo was assembled from various parts Jack found while garbage picking in Detroit. Awesome. (laughs) The triple tremolo has rarely ever been seen or used, and its current whereabouts are unknown. But it appeared with an explanation in the liner notes for Destiel and later appeared in action on The Late Show with David Letterman, fascinatingly enough. So, oh. yeah, that would be the uh, the triple tremble yeah. there. Oh, its whereabouts are, are pretty known to me. I think Jack, one day, you know, he couldn't take care of this thing anymore, and so he, he brought it out to uh, the, the, the depths of Detroit and, and said, Get out of here! <laughs> Get out! Go! Go on! Where are we going? Where are we going? <laughs> Run along, boy. You're free now. No! 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 
And uh, the triple tremolo started rotating in, in some kind of sad tone. And he said, no, get out of here. And then uh, it went back to where he found it, which was in the depths of some awful, dingy garbage can. Yeah. Um, Definitely a trashy. Where, uh, where you can now, you know, it, it's now, uh, you know, you could find little triple tremolos or uh, <laughs> tremolittles. Trem- yeah, they're, they're just, uh, they're, they're all over Detroit. Yep. <laughs> triple tremolo tremendous invention very very cool thank you Callie for pointing that out there's a photo of Jack with it we'll be posting on the Facebook group but um so that was that and then James this is one that I flagged personally for myself when we were talking about the title to steal we talked about its relationship with the neoplasticism movement and how it is an art movement but we didn't talk about what the direct translation for to steal is which is simply the style mm-hmm. you and I were calling this album thinking we were in the know the style for many many years you should not call it that that is not what the album is called that was a mistake on our part (laughs) however if you do want to seem uh to yourself like you know you know what's up you could uh, go ahead and just translate that yourself to the style Mm -hmm. yeah it i mean mike still does it yeah yeah mike still does it and we haven't corrected him (laughs) we led him astray and we have yet to bring him back from that stray fact there but that's because he doesn't listen to our here podcast when I reflect on that fact. Young and Paul, that look good. And for those who don't speak <laughs> Dutch, that said, boy, Paul, that smelled good. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thanks, James. Uh, are you ready to get into this here album uh, analysis part two? What do you say? Yeah. <laughs> Let's get into it. All right, James. Last episode, we left the show with a discussion of track five, which is I'm Bound to Pack It Up. And we're going to start, James, with track six, Mm -hmm. Death Letter. A lot of people know this one because Jack played it throughout his career and uh, notoriously at the Grammys performance. But uh, super good uh, song, super good cover of a song, and the first cover on this album, no? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think it's this one and Stop Breaking Down are up there in my top favorite Jack covers, at least blues covers. This one I think I might like a little more than Stop Breaking Down, but... I like them both a lot. This one just so happens to be particularly compelling. Mm -hmm. As you mentioned, this is a cover song originally written by Eddie James Sunhouse, uh, or Sunhouse, Mm -hmm. a variation on his previously recorded, quote, My Black Mama Part 2, unquote. 
there's a lot of <laughs> that's an interesting face you made, James. Thank you. When you watch uh, Sunhouse perform this live, you see him playing that slide guitar that Jack must have been looking at and fantasizing about playing. Fortunately, there are, there are actual film clips of Sunhouse playing this song, which is pretty neat because they, they caught him before he died <clears throat> and were able to get this on tape. Lyrically, the song is about a man who learns of the death of the woman he loves through a letter delivered to him early in the morning. The narrator later views her body on the cooling board, which is basically the, the morgue, which I honestly did not even realize until I was doing this research, and then later attends her funeral and returns to his home in a state of depression. But that is the tale this, this song is spinning. Mm. Yes. Uh, Sunhouse's lyrics draw from traditional sources. Other blues musicians recorded related songs, including Lead Belly's Death Letter Blues, which I, I think is just sort of a, along the same lines as this, or added a few, or subtracted a few, changed a few of the verses. Uh, Ishman Bracey's Trouble Hearted Blues, Ida Cox's Death Letter Blues, uh, Robert Wilkins' Nashville Stonewall, and Blind Willie McTell's On the Cooling Board. Mm-hmm. And then Death Letter was the centerpiece of Sunhouse's live performances during the blues revival of the 1960s. House often altered the tempo and lyrics for different performances of the song, occasionally playing the song more than once during the same concert. Some renditions of the tune exceeded 15 minutes in length, so that sounds like a f- badass exercise in the blues, you know? Yeah. I got a lemon this morning, I do. You rang it red. It sounds like something Jack would do too is play a song, stop the song, start a new song. Yes. And then start back the other song from three hours ago because he's just feeling in the groove and has to get that out. We've talked about this before, but yeah, he's pulling from those sort of, like, he's not just plucking these weird things he does out of nowhere. I mean, in some cases he is, but he's drawing on these blues musicians very heavily in terms of actual, like, the construction of his sets, you know, and, uh, and his approach to music. Yes. This is the longest track on the album, James, and only one of two songs over four minutes on the album, the other one being A Boy's Best Friend, so... <laughs> As we mentioned in the last episode, the album is filled with a lot of short pop songs, a lot of tracks under two minutes. Uh, This is only one of two songs over four on the entire record. (laughs) Uh, And there's a really cool version of this one on the Peel Sessions, which ends with them flying into Little Bird. And I think that's by accident. At least that's the way it sounds. When you hear the take, he's playing Death Letter, but the blues riff he plays on Death Letter is kind of similar to the blues riff that he created for Little Bird. And so I think he just accidentally played the wrong riff and then they wound up playing Little Bird. That is me editorializing. It could have been intentional.
It's also possible that Meg was playing the drums to another song, and he went with that with the other guitar riff, because he could be playing one guitar riff, and Meg would start playing the drums, and it sounds more like it would belong in Little Bird or Death Letter, and he could go with that. I mean, that's that's how he uh, counterbalanced her a lot of the time, was... Mm -hmm you know, making the set list based off what she was drumming. As you pointed out last episode, he's basing this band around her. She is the art piece he's showcasing. So yeah, I, him following her cues would not be unusual. In fact, it probably, it's probably likely. And there's also a really cool version of this and a lot of this deal songs on that new vault that just came out, uh, which, uh, which is live at the magic stick, I believe, which is, the, that's the 2000 show. So um, for any of you who haven't, uh, who aren't vault subscribers, first of all, you should be, that is the subscription service where Third Man Records sends you really interesting shit every you know three months or so. Uh, and in this case, they sent awesome live albums from 99, 2000, and 2001. The 2000 record has a lot of cool to steal songs on it. Haven't listened to it yet. I look forward to it greatly. I have I have the vault, but I haven't set up my record player yet, so ah. I will get to that. You haven't built the home yet, James. I have not yet built the home. I uh, <laughs> Oh, there's some milk and cookies here. If you'd like. (laughs) I'm on a purely sawdust diet. Well, we've got that too. (laughs) So much blood. In 2015, Johnny Winter recorded the tune, which is a cool acoustic version intercut with imagery of his tour bus traveling across Florida. Johnny Winter, of course, one of the Winter brothers, uh, the other being Edgar Winter. This isn't Jonathan Winter's famed comedian. No. Did you ever undress in front of a dog? Okay. Other artists who've covered this song include The Grateful Dead, John Cougar Mellencamp, and a host of others. Boy, they got the Mellencamp on board. That's fine. Yeah, they got Johnny Cougar. He's there. Stone, Sunhouse's version of the song was plaintive and pained, but White plays with the wrath of God on his. White splatters his tormented vocal with grimy slide guitar work and manages to repackage House's mournful tune as something more thunderous, but no less emotionally impactful. I love the way people editorialize his guitar work. I always, I've said it before, I'll say it again. Writers are just like, how do we best describe Jack White's guitar? How about like slathering paint on guitar? How about (laughs) pouring grime, like trash all over his musical instrument? (laughs) Yeah, they say like fuzzy and screaming, screeching. We get a lot of that. Manic. Yeah, this is uh, via a website called TeamRock.com. The White Stripes bring the song everything it needs and nothing it doesn't. Jack neither tries to be Sunhouse and imitate his style and intentions, nor does he attempt to get Trixie and give it all kinds of radical reinterpretation, which I think is fair. He walks kind of a fine line there with how he's actually interpreting the thing and instead with meg's strong steady just to the right side of simplistic drumming backing him up every step of the way jack becomes the narrator and inhabits the song as himself which i thought was an interesting way to put that because you know he's playing a lot of these blues songs and he's not the one living the stuff he's regurgitating it from people who did live it it sounds like a third person narrator living within the, mm-hmm. the song similarly he distills son's slashing chordal slide attack 
played on one of those magnificent metal-bodied national resonator guitars which can sound in the wrong hands like a skeleton kicking a dustbin and in the right hands becomes the most sublime and perfect oral evocation of the Delta landscape into a clean, clear, and elegant electric guitar line. It's a beautiful paradox. By aiming directly for the heart of the song itself and avoiding any extraneous trimmings or decoration... By resisting the temptation to smear thumbprints all over it by inserting pet stylistic differences and signature licks in order, the Stripes succeeded beyond all expectations in placing a personal stamp on a classic, which is what blues classic reinterpretation is all about. All of that, while hyperbolic and all that stuff, I find it all actually pretty on point. Yes, up to the skeleton kicking the dust. <laughs> uh, yeah, I agree. I definitely agree. He's not uh, He's not overly indulging in it, and he's not giving it anything that it doesn't need. You know, yeah. he's doing a very good job at keeping the song true to what the song is, you know, yes. playing his version of it. He's an enthusiastic fan of this material, and enthusiasm is something he always gives the covers, without exception. Just, he has a deep love for the source material, so much like a good director who's working with a beloved franchise that they themselves enjoy, he's really mm-hmm. paying it respect, but also it's so energetic and it's so full of it, this enthusiastic energy. He's doing The Force Awakens to Sunhouse's <laughs> Star Wars. Oh, let's not. That's going to anger a lot of nerds, Paul. Well, let's not do that. And then, James, <laughs> we had talked last episode. That setlist.fm website is fantastic, and they actually go in and catalog the amount of times that an artist plays a certain song. And so we talked about the different numbers of times Jack covered these different songs. This one's a high. I think it may be the highest of the entire record. He played this one live a cataloged number of 328 times. Just missed 333. Very close. (laughs) Who knows? This is only a cataloged number, so it's anything that wasn't in their system. It's probably a lot higher than that, frankly. Well, Paul, I'm disappointed. Thank you, Jason. (laughs) We go from this song, which I have a lot of information about, to a song I have very little information about, which is track number seven, Sister, Do You Know My Name? It's a good song. It's a little slow, but it's slow in a good way. It's not boring slow. It's got that... It's groove. It's bluesy again, which is weird because yeah. it's, you know, it's not his bluesiest album, but it's another bluesy song right afterwards. Very bluesy. I like this one a lot. It, you, this one would feel right at home on that first record. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's it's obviously showing uh, some of his creative growth 
or their creative growth since then. But yeah, I would, I agree. That's a good way to put it. It's like uh, it is an evolution of what that first record was trying to do. But this is via that Empire from the Blues book. The song quote toys with the sibling act's ambiguity as scratchy slide guitar accompanies a hopeful school bus crush. Mm which is good and then via stripespedia jack said of this song quote there are songs on our albums that i really like that don't go over well live they're slow people don't respond to them it's a shame that i can't play a boy's best friend or sister do you know my name often because they stop the show in a bad way or something i tried to sneak them in once in a while hmm yeah i could see that this would be the crowd goes to the bathroom song for a white stripes concert unfortunately yeah this one's like a it reminds me of a of an evolved Susie Lee mm-hmm. if we're going to go with that. Yeah. And I could see him inserting Susie Lee's name into this too. But it's interesting cuz it's it's going back to that childhood kind of thing, you know, it's all about a you know, seeing your crush on a bus. I mean, yeah. And it's got this really painful but hopeful stinger in it when he says I wish you could be sitting here next to me. Mhm. And he says it a few times in the chorus, and it every time that part really does, it punches at me. I love that line. Yeah. And then at the end, it, it goes, now I see you sitting here next to me. And so I don't, I don't know. It's a hopeful song. It's a bluesy song. I think this goes for everything the White Stripes have been trying to do and yeah. do and do well. And yet it's not usually a fan favorite. So that's that's a shame. It is a shame. Uh, it's obviously a favorite of Jack's. I mean, not only from that quote, but this is one of the songs that's used heavily as ambient music and under Great White Northern Lights. And for good mm-hmm. reason, it is moody, but it also ends on that. Mm-hmm. Ring! You know, it ends with a nice little ringing mm-hmm. of hope and optimism. So uh, obviously something that, uh, you know, Jack was trying to convince himself. And you could read into this. He needs a happy ending right now based on his own relationship status in that the Steel album. He needs to know that there's going to be some kind of resolution that is satisfying. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Uh, again, a lot of that is interpretation. But uh, because as we mentioned in the last episode very much, uh, Jack and Meg were going through a divorce shortly after the recording of this album. So there's probably a lot I'm going to read into. And some of it might, you know, might actually be uh, accurate. But uh, yeah, James, as Jack said in that quote, he only played this one a cataloged number of 17 times live. Wow. Which, again, the death letter was 328. This one's 17. Although there was some that dipped to like four or whatever. So Yeah, that's a drop. That's a drop, all right. Yeah, but I love this song. I think it's great. And I, I like listening to it. It's one of my favorites. If uh, if he ever did like a solo... That's what's confusing me so much about these tour announcements we're getting for Boarding House Reach. Because I thought for sure he wouldn't be doing big festival stuff and all that again i thought for sure after lazaretto he was so soured on it he wouldn't be going back to it partly because he talks so much about not wanting to go back to it the thing i envisioned him doing which i think i'm i was wrong about and we don't know for sure but i think i am i was envisioning these really small almost his acoustic band style sets where it's smaller venues extremely dimly lit and for large portions of the show perhaps he would be the only one on stage as so people could actually listen to the music and i could see this song fitting into a set like that like the show is about to open it's entirely dark and then a single spotlight boom and it's on him with a with a metal slide you know one of those metal slide guitars metal yeah. guitars that is good for slide and just does a really cool rocking version of this that's like kind of slow and moody and it would fit a venue like that 
Yeah, I think he has soured on large-scale um, amphitheater venues, so like your Madison Square Gardens and all that stuff. I think that festivals, he's always kind of enjoyed festivals. Bonnaroo, he's always having a great time at Bonnaroo, it seems. True. Because I think it's just music people who are either really into the music or on drugs or both and they're all just (laughs) feeling his groove and that's what he wants is people to be just into what he's playing or into what the band is playing without any judgment you know he doesn't have to worry about the crowd cheering at a festival because they're gonna friggin that's why they're there along those lines i think he might enjoy the competition too a little bit i think he might like showing up some of these other musicians yeah Definitely. Well, I don't know about definitely, but it seems that way sometimes. I don't know about showing up, but I think he likes giving himself a little extra incentive to work hard and mm-hmm. and walk hard, the Dewey Cox story. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, James, that brings us to track number eight, Truth Doesn't Make a Noise. No, it don't. My baby's got a heart of stone. Can't you people just leave her alone? Never did nothing to hurt you So just leave her alone The motion of her tiny hands And the quiver of her bones below Are the signs of a girl alone James, this opens side B of the long player, or LP, as they as the kids call it. They don't. Don't call it that. Nope. And it's one of the more direct tributes to his marriage with Meg on the album, for sure. Listen to the lyrics here. My baby's got a heart of stone. Can't you people just leave her alone? She never did nothing to hurt you, so just leave her alone. The motion of her tiny hands and the quiver of her bones below are the signs of a girl alone and tell you everything you need to know. I can't explain it. I feel it often every time I see her face. But the way you treat her fills me with rage and I want to tear apart the place. You try to tell her what to do and all she does is stare at you. Her stare is louder than your voice because truth doesn't make a noise. Damn. Meg is a (laughs) notoriously quiet person and she gets a lot of guff. And by the way, we have a lot of fun here. I would hate for somebody to interpret us talking about Meg's simplicity as a negative thing about her. It is never intended that way. I think we have a tremendous amount of affection for Meg and what she brought to that group and a lot of love and respect. Respect, yeah. Yeah, but I can see people getting mean about it because they do, you know, and they must have been really mean about it in Detroit. Can you imagine all the people who practiced and trained and sweat and, you know, friggin' studied for years to get good at an instrument and then Meg becomes the rock star. Can you imagine how much blood that must have been made to boil? I would imagine quite a bit. And you can hear that resentment in some people when they talk about it. Yeah, but in in the same way, Meg wasn't trying to be the rock star. And I think that's what helped make her a rock star. She wasn't looking for fame. No. She was having fun with her friend and making art with her friend and it so happened to be beautiful art and she did it well which also must have pissed off a lot of high-strung people (laughs) she didn't even want it yes (laughs) 
Uh, I don't know. I feel for Jack on that. But one. yeah, I, I never read those lyrics quite that way, and I don't think I'll ever hear them the same again. You know, I, I always like listen to them, but hearing like the quiver of the bones below is that her drumsticks? Like I yeah, I get it. It's interesting. I never I never really interpreted it that way, and that's a lot sadder and deeper than I would have given it credit for originally. I suppose you could interpret it a number of ways. I mean, that's what Jack always says. It's like. It's not any this one thing. And He's the master of double entendre. Yeah, and I'm yeah. not talking about sexual entendre. <laughs> this is a quote from that Empire from the Blues book. The girl looks small to him with bird-like fragile bones, but unbreakable, quiet self-possession. She's the wife and sister drummer who's whispering unworldliness and stubborn silences frustrated him and made him devotedly proud. Her stare is louder than your voice, he tells anyone who'd slight her, ready to rip up the joint in a rage at her detractors. This protective big brother's love would endure till the white stripes end. Hmm. Once again, Jack is on piano uh, for this track. This one is played a uh, cataloged number of 53 times, another kind of lower number. The number of performances per tour of this song fall pretty drastically after 2001 so they don't really play this one in their heavily famous period mm-hmm. but that is the truth doesn't make a noise james one of one of my favorite songs in the album this one and a boy's best friend are actually um which we're going to be talking about next wound up being the two biggest revelations for me on this album based on the backstory surrounding it which will lead us james to track number nine a boy's best friend ah. just don't fit in this place Their thoughts cast me out of here best friend sister do you know my name kind of i don't know there's a lot of i don't even know what i'm trying to get at i know what you're trying to get at it's boys and girls i mean it's it's building he's building the stripes mythology more with this record as well which is a lot of boys and girls and brothers and sisters and yada yada mm-hmm. this one i i didn't i never knew why it was called this and i honestly didn't really like the title much but then i was thinking about it and doing this research and do you want to venture a guess as to what a boy's best friend refers to uh let me look at the lyrics and all there's a pretty big clue in the title itself if you take out boy and replace it with another thing. I'm going to guess dog. Correct. Is it really? Yes. This was described in that Empire from the Blues book as a slow motion slide with tolling piano and lazy cymbal crashes. It sees Jack exiled to a room where words meant for a girl who's not there hollowly ring, I am alone, dear, he assures her. Then his soon-to-be ex-wife hits the chorus with him in unified power, even as the lyric prefers mom, pets, and cigarettes who never let you down. When you read the lyrics, yeah, there's some where he's like, a boy's best friend is his mother and whoever he calls his pet. A lot of it has to do with dogs when you're reading the lyrics. It's funny that it's about his mom and a dog because apparently there's an Isaac Asimov story 
oh. called A Boy's Best Friend. I don't know if you know this. It's a short story that Asimov, who famously wrote I, Robot, wrote in Boy's Life in 1975. Which, yeah. uh, to, to quote Wikipedia here, it's a story set in the future when habitation of the moon has already taken place. Jimmy Anderson is a moon-born 10-year-old and owns a robotic dog named Robot. Yeah. Whom he comes to love, and he goes to the moon freely and securely as he is moonborn and has Robot with him. His parents want him to have a real dog, a Scottish Terrier, but Moonborns can't visit Earth, and his parents bring the dog to the moon, and Jimmy doesn't want to take away his robot dog, and <laughs> yeah, basically, he decides not to have the living dog and takes the fake robot instead. It is as if, James, you reached into my computer and pulled out my notes. Again, that one centers around dogs as well. Also, Jimmy. Possibly exploding. Mm-hmm, yeah. But even that one is about what constitutes a companion. It just so happens to be dog is in there. Let's just read the lyrics real quick. I just don't feel it in this place. Their thoughts cast me out of here. Their home has run out of space. My mind's already out of here. Won't you come along, dear? Won't you come along? Words that are spoke alone. Phrases you will never hear. Empty rooms and a telephone that I will never use. Never fear. I am all alone, dear. I am all alone. My dog sits next to me. A pack of dogs and cigarettes. My only friends speak no words to me, but they look at me and they don't forget. That's a boy's best friend is his mother or whatever has become his pet. Man, this guy's got a sad right now. Holy shit. <laughs> yeah, he's, he's lonesome. He's a lonesome boy, but not that lonely yet. Yeah, that line, my only friends speak no words to me kills me I, I i never really even gave this song a lot of thought or anything like that but when i was doing the research i happened to be listening to the album a lot and i was out on a run and i got to this song and i heard that line with the thinking about it being with him and dogs alone in a room or something and uh i was like crushed by it i was like oh because it's so sad <laughs> so sad yeah even the cigarette dog comparison you know being lonely and and sad yeah. you know y you would picture a guy with you know talking to his dog because that's what he has or you know having a cigarette because both of them are kind of crutches in a way you know something yes. to get you through the hard times a pack of dogs and a pack of cigarettes are you know it's an interesting little uh, metaphor he's created for any of you who've been smokers out there in your lives you'll never be let down by a cigarette except when you're killed by it eventually but it's a it's a sense that it's always there and it's a it's a companion and it's a sense of continuity and uh, jack as we know has wrestled with smoking on and off throughout his entire career and life he, sh he smokes more than he should he should not do that but yeah i could i could definitely see that it's a, it's a depression thing man yeah it just shows a man who's at the end of a relationship and is just broken just completely shattered and it doesn't mean he won't put himself back together again but for now he's just a broken husk of a dude relying on the kinds of things that he knows won't let him down a dog and a cigarette and his mom mm -hmm. <laughs> you know yeah um yeah woof 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 jack's dogs likely refer to astro and jasper who are both name checked on the first white stripes album meg is credited with tambourine and sleigh bells on this one and it's another piano piece with electric slide contribution from jack comparisons were drawn from this song to singer mark lanigan and his solo work which i learned a little bit about in the research which is interesting i know you've been hurt 
someone else I can tell by the way You carry yourself But if you let me Here's what I'll do I'll take care of you I loved and loved and I actually could not find any number of catalog performances of this song live. Oh, well. This is the other one he mentions about not going over well live because of its slow tempo. And that website, setlist.fm, has absolutely zero number of performances of him with this song. Damn. I would love to see him close a show out with this or... Oh, what a downer, James. <laughs> no, but think think about him <laughs> opening a show with this song and then busting into like a fast blues song would be like oh it would give you such a high because it's it's the emotional kick would be so interesting oh you mean like track number 10 let's build a home oh who'd have thought Uh, That brings us to track number 10, Let's Build a Home. One of my favorite Jack White songs, and this is one that uh, we talked about on the episode 52, our top 52 favorite Jack tunes. This was on there for me. Really love this one. Really high energy. Really uh, shakes off that loneliness that you get from the last song and gets you into a head-bobbing hip swinging mood you know it's it's good come on <laughs> it yeah all right yeah <laughs> not only did it open our show today james but it all the track itself opens with a six-year-old jackie gillis and a quote early proud performance warmly encouraged by his parents to sing his party piece a misheard homily about the devil adapted to his own long-lasting desires i wish i had a little red box to put my best friends in i take them out and put and put them back again. <laughs> uh, this was taped by Jack's mom and his older brother. This is a quote from Jack. It was some sort of religious song. I didn't sing it right. It should have been, I wish I had a little red box to put the devil in. I take him out and punch, punch, punch and put him back again. Which is, a, <laughs> by the way, a Lovin' Brothers style deranged thing. I don't know what the f- I was, I was going to say, although the Lovin' Brothers would probably be like, no, you put the... The devil will come out of the box and kill you at night because of yeah. all the sins you committed. Right. I wish I had a little red box to put the devil in. I'd take him out and then have him eat you because you're a terrible sodomite. <laughs> now let me break my fiddle. <laughs> but there is a different version of this song, too, that goes, I wish I had a little red box to put my mommy in. i take her out and go kiss, kiss, kiss and put her back again. There's just so many issues with this, James. So many, so many deep Freudian issues with these. Right. Why would you say mommy when you could say mother? I mean, come on. That would be the issue. Mm-hmm. Yep. It's the only issue. Yep. You just sing some of the songs. Do you know any by heart? Sing that one song you were singing about your little red box. Oh, yeah. I haven't heard that in a oh. long time. Did you forget it? No. Show me how it I forgot. Oh, I want to remember, I, and I want to still. I, I wish I had a little red box 
to put my best friends in. I take them out and and put them back again. When played live, this song is often coupled with Going Back to Memphis by the Memphis Jug Band. He does play that on the last night of he and Meg's infamous Conan stint where he really became a household name there we'll play a little bit of that here this has been one of the coolest weeks we've ever experienced so please welcome one more time the white stripes song it's really high energy it's really fast i wish it was longer it's short it's really really short but i wish it was longer but i I, it's only because i love it so and this is what shocked me about this one he only played it live a catalog number of 98 times it's kind of kind of low it's i mean it's a lot more than uh, sister do you know my name that one is uh followed by track number 11 jumble 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 Come on over Sleep on the couch Can't even see ya Look like a mouse This is another high-energy track. I don't like it as much as Let's Build a Home, but it's okay. This one is another one that I feel would find a nice home on uh, the debut album, the Mm self-titled. It's got that early Stripes feeling. I think the song it's most akin to on that album is actually Jimmy the Exploder. Yeah. And I think Jimmy the Exploder is a stronger song than this one. But this one, the recording of this one's nicer. Yeah, yeah. I'll give you that. And I do like Jimmy the Exploder a little better, too. Like this one a lot it is more skippable i i say hesitantly i think if this song came after another depressing song it would feel a little uh yeah better i think this one suffers a little bit from album arrangement from sequencing sequencing that's the one it's got some it's got some sequencing problems i agree not my favorite i think the lyrics are just really really simple we'll just read some of these here i mean there's a lot of these lyrics but jumble jumble all at my house come on over sleep on the couch can't even see you look like a mouse that's kind of funny like these lyrics are kind of like jack talking trash a little bit crumble crumble the bag is brown rip up the paper to hear a sound pick up the pieces off the ground tumble tumble onto the floor roll over until you're poor wave to me i'm at the door That's kind of funny. So, yeah, kind of forgettable. Uh, Although, James, do you know who did not forget about this song? Uh, No, I I can't think of anybody. Former Radio Canada host Dominique Payette. 
Pour en parler en duplex avec nous depuis Québec, Dominique Payette. Bonsoir Dominique Payette, vous êtes professeur à l'Université Laval à Québec, professeur au département information. Évidemment, c'est la question que tout le monde se pose cette semaine parce que il y a à Québec des radios qui ont des caractéristiques. Uh, it's in French and you can't really hear it too terribly well. The lawsuit demanded $70,000 in damages and the removal of the album from store shelves. The dispute was settled out of court. Damn. Did not know about this lawsuit, but it's really the only thing I could find about it online. This is via Wired. The suit alleged that the White Stripes invaded her privacy. The duo used an excerpt from Laval University professor Dominique Payette's call-in program as the intro to the song called Jumble Jumble. On January 31st, Payette asked a Montreal Superior Court to stop distribution of the album, saying that the White Stripes never asked for permission and she never would have consented to her voice associated with an album which reproduces lyrics which transmit a message she would not have endorsed or shared. Okay. All right. Payette says she learned of the sampling in March of 2007 <laughs> and sent a letter that month demanding the White Stripes stop distributing the album. Threat Level wishes Payette the best of luck in her efforts to squash fair use and to protect the privacy of radio broadcasters. In fact, we humbly suggest that all radio listeners stop harassing Terry Gross by tuning in to NPR with the secret eavesdropping equipment hidden in the dashboard of their cars. Obviously, that's some editorializing by this website. <laughs> Is kind of funny. Wowzers. This is via the Toronto Star. Payette, whose voice is easily recognizable, and the unidentified girl are talking in French about something the girl has experienced, quote, for the first time. Payette says she was particularly shocked about the use of the child's voice. She said Radio Canada follows strict rules when interviewing children, including obtaining the permission of parents. Quote from her, they use the child's voice in a very cavalier way. I had two choices, either go to court or do nothing. I decided to do something. You know, obviously that was settled out of court, but my God, crazy. Yikes. For one of our least favorite Stripe songs, it got some of the most controversy, it seems. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Jack doesn't seem to care for this one much anyway. Uh, the catalog number of performances, seven. <laughs> so there you go. Uh, that leads us to track 12, Why Can't You Be Nicer To Me? My favorite songs on the album very funny and a great groove you know i really love this groove yes i do like this song 
Hey, it's a good song. I, I don't have any more insight into it other than that. But, Paul, I wish you'd give me some. Dick Valentine of The Electric Six said of this, quote, I loved Why Can't You Be Nicer to Me. I thought the lyrics were hilarious. I remember being captivated by that song. It is definitely funny. Like, Jack is being kind of cheeky in it and stuff. Somebody screaming, looking at the ceiling. Everything's so funny. I don't have any money. People don't even know me, but they know how to show me. There's some interesting stuff on there. Some interesting early live versions of this song. One where Meg's drumming is uh, definitely shaky and is reminiscent of that first Gold Dollar show, although a tiny bit more sophisticated. Via Wikipedia, the song Why Can't You Be Nicer to Me was used in the Fox animated series The Simpsons episode Judge Me Tender. So that's kind of interesting. Mm. Simpsons used this one. This song also features another cameo, James. The second cameo on the album from Paul Henry Ossi, who is credited with Electric Violin. So reading into these lyrics, and I never really put this together before, but is the last verse about killing himself? Well, the wind is blowing. Where am I going? Off a bridge and falling. Nobody's calling on the ground and laying. Nobody's praying. I I mean, it certainly sounds that way. I'm not to say that Jack was suicidal at this point. I don't know. I'm just saying like, and he's usually telling a story in these, but like, is the character killing themselves in, in, at the end here? Here's why I think this is tongue in cheek because yeah, that's the verse. But then the chorus is, why can't you be nicer to me? <laughs> <laughs> so he's, if he's like talking about jumping off a bridge, but the resolution is like, why are you such an asshole? Yeah. You know? It's kind of funny, in a way. Well, I mean, everything's so funny. I just don't have the money. Yeah. People don't even know me, but they know how to show me. Paul Henry Ossi is Jack's cousin and frequent musical collaborator, and the electric violin, this is via Wikipedia, is a violin equipped with an electric output for its sound. The term usually refers to an instrument intentionally made to be electrified with built-in pickups. It can also refer to a violin fitted with an electric pickup of some type, although amplified violin or electroacoustic violin are more accurate in that case. So it's just like an electric guitar. It's just it's okay. one you can plug in. Gotcha. And uh, he's only played this one a catalog number of 18 times, James. Man, all right, yeah. All of a sudden, 328 is seeming extraordinarily large for the rest of this album. Yes, and that brings us, James, to the last track on the album, track number 13. One of my all-time favorite Jack songs, let alone Jack covers. I think I like this one even more than Death Letter, honestly. Uh, Your Southern Can is Mine. Now, look here, Mama, let me explain you this. 
you wanna get crooked, I'll even give you my fist. You might read from Revelation back to Tennessee. To get crooked, your southern can't belong to me. So they know you see thinking no job to me. Your southern can is mine in the morning. Your southern can belongs to me. You might go uptown, have me arrested, put in jail. Some hot shots got money, gonna pull my bail. As soon as I get out, hit the ground. Southern Canada's worth a dollar a half a pound So they ain't used to bringing no job to me Your Southern Canada's mine Talking about it Your Southern Canada belongs to me You might take it from the South, baby, hide it up north Understand you can't rule me or be my boss Take it from the East Delightfully offensive <laughs> I think is is how I've always looked at it And I think very, very tongue-in-cheek But yeah, it's a good jack cover song that is covering an old-timey blues singer yeah well as we talked about last episode this album was not only uh, dedicated to rietveld the uh the steel architect but it was also dedicated to blind willie mctell and blind willie mctell is the author of your southern can is mine otherwise known as william samuel blind willie mctell and he wrote it in 1930 although some place it as early as 1927 it ends with an audio clip of Willie talking about a car crash. You keep moving around like you're uh, uncomfortable. What's the matter, Willie? Well, I was in an automobile accident last night. Still shook up. No one got hurt, but it was all uh, jostled up mighty bad. Shake up. Still sore from it, but no one got hurt. And I always wondered, like, what is that? Like, why are they playing that? I don't know why they put it on there. It's kind of, like, charming in a way. Mm-hmm. But... I did find, James, the full clip. Yeah? Uh, so we're going to go ahead and play the full clip of that here. Oh, man, yeah. I'm super pumped to hear that. These spirituals have been sung and played by Blind Willie Mactell, 42 years old, and blind from babyhood at Atlanta, Georgia, on uh, November the 5th, 1940, for the Folk Song Archive of the Library of Congress in Washington. I wonder I wonder if you know any songs about colored people having hard times here in the South. Well, that old song that have a reference to our old people here, they haven't very much stuff of the people nowadays because of... Any complaining songs, complaining about the hard times and sometimes mistreatment of the whites. Have you got any songs that talk about that? No, so we have. Not at the present time, because the white people are mighty good to the southern people, as far as I know. Mm-hmm. And you, have, you don't know any complaining songs at all? Well... Ain't it hard to be a nigger and nigger? Do you know that one? No, that's not in our time. And now it's for spiritual down here, it's a mean world to live in. But that don't have, still don't have reference to the hard time. Just because of the... Why is it a mean world to live in? Well, no, it's not altogether. It has reference to everybody. It's, it's as mean for the whites as it is for the blacks, is that it? That's the idea. You keep moving around like you're uh, uncomfortable. What, what's the matter, Willie? Well, I was in an automobile accident last night. It was still shook up. No one got hurt, but... It was all uh, jostled up mighty bad. Shake up. Still sore from it, but no one got hurt. This is via Stripespedia about that outro sample. It's from an interview with Blind Willie McTell circa 1940. 
Apparently, John A. Lomax and his wife saw Willie playing in the street in Atlanta, Georgia, and afterwards asked him if he could record some material for them. They ended up recording this compilation in a hotel room shortly after. What's particularly interesting about these interviews is the fact that the aging Lomax comes across as an insensitive racist asshole, possibly mistaking Blind Willie McTell for the similarly named Blind Willie Johnson. Yeah, he does sound like a complete dick. Like, he's he's being really, really rude to this guy. And Willie's just sort of taking it. Those of you who don't know, John Avery Lomax was an American teacher in the 30s and 40s and a pioneering musicologist and folklorist who wanted to preserve American folk music. Mm. And yes. kind of a, kind of a dip. Jack said of this song, quote, I was saying, these are my idols, yet I probably disagree with their lifestyle a lot. The wife beating, the drinking, the carousing, sick behavior like that. I'm respecting the notions they're conveying in their music, but I'm not respecting the people that they are. Michelangelo was probably a complete egomaniac jerk too, you know? While there wasn't equality between sexes and races at the time, there were a lot of things involving feminine and masculine ideals that were closer to one's own nature. This kind of opinion can be treated as sexist, but it's the same as saying females can give birth but males can't. Culture is dying because of mass communication, malls are springing up in third world countries, and we're all striving for the same sort of success, but we're missing out on a lot of things about what a family is, what a male is, and what a female is. Which in and of itself is sort of a controversial thing, I suppose, but I see what he's saying. Uh, he's separating art and artist. I, I think that's fair. Uh, sometimes you have to do that. You know, we love John Lennon, but probably not the best role model in the universe. Mm. There's many examples of that. Uh, so this is, again, uh, Jack talking about the song via Song Facts. Jack White explained why he chose to cover the song in February of 2006 to Guitar World magazine. When we were finishing the album, I decided I wanted to dedicate it to Blind Willie McTell. During that time, it hit me that McTell and most of the great country bluesmen were recording and performing in the early 1920s, which was the same time period as when the DeSteel art movement was taking root. They were both doing the same things, breaking things down to their essences. In my mind, both the country blues and the DeSteel movement represented a new beginning of music and art, perhaps for the rest of eternity. Both broke their respective arts down to its very core, and you couldn't get any more simple or pure than the DeSteel school. They used only squares, horizontal, and vertical lines and primary colors. That's it. The country blues of Sunhouse and Charlie Patton also brought music down to its fundamentals. I wanted to draw those comparisons between these two things, which made people think that Meg and I were art students, which we weren't. I couldn't afford it. I probably would have gone if I could. Interesting. Yeah, and this is from Song Meanings. At the time, uh, at the height of the segregation system, singing any kind of open protest song would have likely meant that you would wind up being dead by sundown, but if someone dared to protest, it would have been done in a coded way, coded so white people could not understand it. A common form of coding back then was to sing about women when what they really meant was white people. People often deride the blues as a bunch of songs about being mistreated by bad women. That's absolutely, absolutely true. And if McTell is singing about someone's southern can, i.e. southern ass, belonging to someone else, well, that very well might also be social commentary. The references to violence make an awful lot more sense this way. Of course, 
We could all be totally wrong. Yet, it's certainly worth re-listening to a lot of your old blues records and thinking about what they might have been trying to say. James, I think you talked about that a little bit in a prior episode. I think we might have even talked about it in relation to this song. Quite possibly. Like you were saying earlier, Jack doesn't pull his double entendre thing from nowhere. He pulls it from the blues, and the blues are very, very good at making two meanings out of one statement. And going back to American-rooted gospel music and slave songs they were singing songs about god and worship in order to talk about the news and planning escapes and how to stay alive and it's an interesting very complex way of singing and the blues is very good at it so it's entirely possible and i wouldn't doubt that that's what it's actually about yeah this is the first white stripe song that meg contributes vocals to oh wow yeah is it really i didn't know that Yeah, she sings along with Jack throughout this one. I've seen some credit her with backing vocals on A Boy's Best Friend, but if she's there, I can't hear it. But yeah, she would later go on to sing more a little bit here and there with the group. Uh, Obviously, on the next record, she shares a vocal with Jack on that song about those 300 people down in West Virginia. This protector. It's entirely possible on A Boy's Best Friend that what people are mistaking for Meg, if it's not Meg, is a second track with Jack's vocals higher pitched Mm -hmm. on them because Jack can sing pretty high back in those days, so it's possible people have mistaked to those for Megs. Yeah. Via the AV Club, DeSteel finishes with the pair covering Blind Willie McTell's Your Southern Can Is Mine, a jangling blues bit of snark that, on the surface, details an abusive and controlling view, warning his woman that there ain't no use bringing no jive to me. Now, baby, ashes to ashes, sand to sand, when I hit you, mama, then you feel my hand. Jack sings soon thereafter. While a surface reading of McTell's lyrics are undoubtedly troublesome, like just about everything else to the White Stripes, there's also more to it than can be found in the initial analysis. And then it goes on to talk about the blues records, so the women thing being a placeholder for white society. This in and of itself doesn't necessarily excuse the association and may still point toward a genuine critique of the White Stripes' fascination with this, but it is interesting nonetheless. And uh, Jack and Meg played this one live a catalog number of 31 times. So not too many, but they played it enough. Yeah. That's more than I would have thought, actually. Now, James, you keep moving around like you're uncomfortable, James. Uh, What's the matter? Just a little, you know, nobody got hurt. Just nobody got hurt. (laughs) We're okay. I'm okay. A little shook up. Nobody got hurt. James, that's the album. You want to get to the reception here? Yeah, it could do, Paul. Let's talk about reception, and let's bring this bad boy home. Let's do it. The album release party was held in June of 2000 at the Magic Bag. The same week, the Stripes departed Mm -hmm. for a tour of the West Coast. James, the Magic Bag, as you mentioned last episode when we were talking to Callie, it was a popular venue for music at the time, although it wasn't actually in Detroit. It was in one of the northern suburbs. Damn. They explained this in the Volta card, actually. That's how I learned about this. In the Vault package, they say that it was for people who were living in the suburbs who didn't want to go to Detroit because they were spooked by it could have access to the music uh, from Detroit. So Jack was bringing all that fear with him uh, and singing Southern Can (laughs) is Mine to these folks, uh, these fine folks out there. (laughs) Yep. Basically, Uh, the band's buzz was growing and suddenly suburbanites were coming to see the stripes at the gold dollar. A Metro Times reported said of the album, it grabs you at first listen and said he thinks back fondly to Jack's quote about it. Quote, we were pretty angry on that first album, but I think that's gone from anger to bitterness. 
Wow. Wowzers. All right. It's kind of funny. Uh, the subsequent tour, which we'll get into on another show, continued the to keep the ball rolling, where the Stripes cemented their friendships with other bands like uh, Whirlwind Heat and such, and wound up opening for Slater Kinney, which wound up just busting the door open for them in terms of getting all this other exposure and started a lifelong friendship between Jack White and Carrie Brownstein. Hmm. Of... Portlandia fame. It's a little tough to find reviews for this album from the time because, again, they were so niche that no one was really listening to it yet. But Rolling Stone did uh, talk about the album and said it was feisty and clever, and Meg White's drumming is so minimal it's almost funny. Pop Matters did a big write-up at the time. Uh, De Steel is their second release and seems to be kicking up a fair amount of critical acclaim. Even Rolling Stone has touted them as the next big thing. Maybe you'll see them gracing the front cover of your TV guide. Maybe not. They give you music that is stripped down and bare-boned, and yet they have the gifted ability to invoke an amount of power way beyond the constraints of their simplicity. Their best asset lies in the space between the music, not what is played. But what is left out? So I think that that's part of the problem is that you can't hear it. You know, you have to see it. You have to see what's at stake. I mean, look at these fellas. Look at, look at the, the, the sax player right now. He just hijacked the song. He's on his own trip. The foundation of sound. There is just enough emptiness around for an impeccable gunshot drum beat and a guitar man to assume the total power focus. They know all this. They know they're good. They can move comfortably from the fuzzed-up, freewheeling carnality of Let's Build a Home or Hello Operator and then bring it down to a more candy-striped, melodic level, I'm bound to pack it up, or Apple Blossom. Which, again, for all type verbally, is a fine assessment of the, of the group. During that, Rolling Stone even said they're the next big thing. Can we cue in when Jack's at Bonnaroo saying, uh, is Rolling Stone uh, responsible for making this music? <laughs> we are! <laughs> oh dear via jack's universal music publishing profile when the white stripe started in 1997 no one least of all jack ever experienced that a red white and black two-piece band would take hold in the mainstream world the band's self-titled debut and sophomore effort to steal amassed critical acclaim but built a passionate underground following it was the release of 2001's blood cells that would thrust the white stripes onto magazine covers and captivate larger audiences so we already covered White Blood Cells. James, we'll have to get into the tour surrounding both the Steel and White Blood Cells on future shows. Yes, please. And then the last on reception here via the AV Club. By 2011, after 14 years and six albums, the White Stripes were finished. Like the Steel movement coincidentally lasting just as long, the project couldn't realistically sustain itself under its own self-imposed aesthetic and artistic restraints. I think that's kind of a poetic cap to this, James. The Distille movement itself and the White Stripes lasting the same amount of years. Wow, that's super interesting. Well, I mean, if Jack had his way, he'd, he'd be keeping the White Stripes going. So he says... So, James, we'll talk a little bit about promotion here. Jack and Meg made their TV debut on May 28, 2000, in advance of the album release. The following June, they played Apple Blossom and Death Letter Blues on Backstage Pass. We talked about that a little bit last episode mm-hmm. and uh, embarked on a major tour to support it. And, James, that is going to bring us to our rating. Oh, nice. Yeah, let's get to it. So every time we do an album analysis and review, we 
give the album uh, a rating. And because me and Paul love pretty much every album Jack White has ever done, it wouldn't make sense to rate it out of 10 or 5 or whatever, because we'd always be giving it, you know, a 7 to a 10, you know, in that range. It would be kind of meaningless. So what we've decided to do instead is uh, is give it a very Jack White-themed rating system of out of three, out of three men. Mm-hmm. One man, meaning we liked it. Two men, meaning we loved it, and three men, meaning we've got to have it, because this is the Cold Stone Creamery <laughs> oh system. Basically, we'll give a little uh, response to what we feel about the album, and uh, and then we'll give it a rating out of three men. So, Paul, what, what, what do you got for me? You know me? I can go. Yeah, why don't you go? All right. Yeah. Uh, this one is one of my favorite records they ever made. I love this album. I think it's the most White Stripes record they ever made. It is a little disjointed, uh, to be honest. It's Jack in crisis, you know? His marriage is ending, his overly simple style is starting to feel like a needless gimmick, but he has also holding on to these gimmicks and trying to reinforce them because I think he's not sure what to do. Uh, A lot of the songs revolve around frustration, pain, and nostalgia, but his songwriting takes leaps and bounds in this period, I think because of the pain. And researching the album got me thinking of the White Stripes studio albums as essentially two plays, right? So the first play is pre-fame. The White Stripes, Mm -hmm. The Steel, and Blood Cells. It's a three-act structure. You define your purpose, then you lose your purpose, then you regain it and either prevail or fail. Well, with the first album, Jack and Meg set their purpose and define themselves. Pared down, raw, to steal is them on their journey, but they're losing themselves a bit. It's an identity crisis and a crisis of confidence in a lot of ways. Though I think through that crisis comes the truth of who that band really is, and they then cement themselves and define it with blood cells in Act 3. And then the second play is post-fame. Elephant is the definition Mm. album. It defined everything they had learned to that point and maybe shows them at the top of their game. Then you get Satan. It's confused, it's sad, it's angry, and it shows you the kind of identity crisis we saw into Steel. Of course, though, through that terror comes the reaffirmation of purpose and you end on Icky Thump, which is is probably their the strongest album they ever made. So, look, the, the second act in a play is usually the most compelling one, and in this case I happen to agree. I think the Steel of those first three albums is probably my favorite, even over Blood Cells. So, James, I have to go, I think I'm going to have to give this album a three out of three men. Oh, very nice. Yeah, I think it's a perfect three. I think it's a... I think it's, this is the White Stripes. This album is the White Stripes. All right. That's an interesting way of putting it. And I wouldn't, I wouldn't have ever put that together, but going based off that, yeah, this is, forgive the pun, but a distillation of, of what the White Stripes is all about and is blues. It's angry rock. It's garagey. It's everything that the White Stripes first album wanted to be, but couldn't be yet. Yeah. And I think that they had finally found what, they were trying to do with this album and i've always appreciated it i've always appreciated it more than the self-titled album and i always thought of it as a, a pair with you know i i didn't i never thought of it the first three albums being uh, together i always thought of the first album and the style being a pair that you mm-hmm. you don't separate you know and when i bought the first album i also bought the style because that's just what they looked similar, they felt similar, the sound was similar, and they were both about a half hour, you know? <laughs> um, it's a good thesis statement for the White Stripes. It's presenting, you know, the White Stripes' first album is their attention grabber, and then the style is their thesis statement. Um, and then the rest of their albums are, 
you know, the rest of the, the research and paper in, yeah. <laughs> into what they're trying to do. We're both making very weird uh, <laughs> metaphors out of this, but I always liked it. I always thought it was great. Not my favorite by any means. I prefer blood cells over this. I prefer elephant over this. I actually prefer pretty much all their other albums, except for self-titled over this. Really? But huh. I acknowledge its importance, and I love most of the songs on this album. So I'm going to have to give it a solid two men. Two men. Two men it is. Two men. Wow. I, that's interesting. I, yeah. I don't know. I know you've always you've always had more of an affection for Blood Cells than I. I think it's because Blood Cells is just so played out for me at this point. We know those songs so much. I don't know, I, I, but that's interesting you say that. And, and the pairing thing, absolutely, yeah, totally. This one of the first, yeah. This is just a better version of the first album in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's the Spider-Man 2 with Tobey <laughs> Maguire to the Spider-Man 1 with Tobey Maguire. The same thing, but better. Well, James, I think that's been a great uh, rating there, uh, outing for us. And that's it. That's to steal. That's to style. You want to throw it over to our third person for this week? Let's throw it to our third person this week. like to welcome our third man for this week our father wayne kaminsky dad you haven't been around the show much lately it's been a little while we're starting to get a little insulted frank it's been a minute to be sure yeah Th- thank you <laughs> <laughs> welcome back dad we love you how are you doing i'm still standing which is good <laughs> <laughs> me and paul are sitting dad is standing everybody's doing okay i'm a vertical man yeah, yeah. Dad, you were, I think, our second guest way back when, episodes three and four, I think you were on. Yeah. And you later appeared spitting some poetry in our Christmas episode, and yeah, I don't think you've been back since, so we're glad to have you back here. Oh, geez, I thought I was banished. I was hiding my head. <laughs> Thank well, you Well, there's still much. time. Yeah, okay. <laughs> so we're here talking to you today because we are starting a new podcast that is based on and primarily consisting of a project that you've been working on for the past 18 years. Ooh. It's a Beatles show called Yesterday and Today. And just the, the quick pitch on that is it is a chronological history of the Beatles and their surrounding members uh, starting at the very beginning, although we'll be starting um, sort of in the middle of their fame in the episodes. But this is told from the perspectives of the people at the time, which is not something you really see a lot of in Beatle documentaries and even music documentaries. It's mostly retrospective. But what you're doing is you're you're taking this collection of yours and really using it to kind of build a story here. You want to start by telling us a little bit about when you became a Beatle fan and what inspired you about the group. Sure. <clears throat> I became a Beatle fan during the war. I was pulling the <laughs> weed out of John Wayne's head. Uh, no, I was. Uh, <laughs> I became a Beatle fan way back. 1964, along with most people, watching them on the Ed Sullivan show, hearing their music over the AM radio, their transistor radio, whereas my mom ironed in the kitchen, I used to listen to the radio as she ironed and I did my homework. Did you see the Sullivan show when it aired live? Mm Mm-hmm. Through a smoky haze, because my dad used to smoke and lay on the floor, (laughs) (laughs) and the cigarette smoke just went right all over the place (laughs) and i said wow that's pretty good were you familiar with the band at that point or were you uh i was familiar with them through am radio because am radio was playing them quite a bit and um wabc was the radio station along with wmca that i used to listen to and wabc had scott muni and uh cousin brucey bruce morrow 
in New York. Who me and you saw at one point. This is true. And um, so I listened to their records, and I was like, wow, this is pretty good. This is different. It's unusual. I was a little kid at that point. I was about eight years old, nine years old, and it just gave me a big impression. So since I didn't have any pocket money at that age, what I used to do is I used to uh, collect news articles from the newspaper. Mm -hmm. And then uh, as the years went on, I used to do odd jobs around the house for my grandpa and my dad, and they used to give me money. So around 1967, 68 was the first time that I actually had some pocket money and used to go to stores such as as a New York or an East Coast store called Two Guys. And I used to buy their records. I remember buying their first record, which wasn't their first record, but it was my first record of the Beatles, which was the Beatles 6, which came out in 1964. I believe, which is one of the reasons why I wanted to start this special with 65, even though 64 and earlier has been done, but it just holds a different or a more personal touch to what I, uh, or thought of what I wanted to do here. So Beatles 6 was the, in America, Capital mm-hmm. was releasing the Beatles music. They had a, right. they they had a deal them. to do that which they wished with the, with the records and they could sequence them and call them whatever they liked. And so Beatles 6 were sort of this hodgepodge mm-hmm. of the the English Rubber Soul and Beatles for Sale, which were the, the British releases. And so mm-hmm. a lot of American fans, such as yourself, I think, got to know their music through these capital releases, which a lot of English people are sort of horrified by. <laughs> yeah, uh, yeah, but some of them are pretty good. You know, I think Beatles' second album is a great example of like an album that Capitol put together that's downright listenable. Like it's mm-hmm. it's a lot of fun. Well, and when I was a kid, I had Beatles '65 as a cassette, and so that's all I knew that from. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> and it's yeah. an album that fans now clamor for because that is, if I'm not mistaken, the one that had the infamous Butcher cover on it. Correct? No, that was that's, uh, oh, the that's album yesterday and today. today. The album yesterday and today. Yeah, okay. Never mind. Um, although you are correct, Beatles Six did have a different back cover. They okay. did not have a track by track listing on the very early one. And that was pulled about a year later. And then if you get a Beatles 6 album today or, Mm -hmm. you know, in a store and you have track listings or side listings, songs one through six on side one, then that's a a redone or reprinted Beatles 6. So the ones that are worth more money are the ones prior to that. So it's interesting we're we're talking about the American releases here because one of those American releases, as we just mentioned, yesterday and today, mm-hmm. that was the album released in 66. And that one had, I don't know, it had selections from the English Revolver and also some holdovers from some other stuff and uh, singles, things like that. But that is the name in which the that you chose for the special. What what right. made you choose yesterday and today for the title of this project? Sure. This pro- Well, let me go back just a little bit. The project was... Sure in conception in my home (laughs) in my head what i wanted to do is i wanted to play albums and 45s and they also had spoken word albums Mm. back then and i played them in yearly succession so that way for whatever reason maybe i was crazy but i would put on the 64 album first and then i would listen to the 65 album and then I thought to myself, wow, it'd be great to have these all on some sort of tape. And they only had reel to reels at that time. <laughs> so the first idea I ever had of doing something in a chronological order, if you will, was back then when I was 10. Hmm. So later on in the 70s, after the Beatles broke up in the 70s, 
there used to be a few radio shows on various stations on FM. One of them was called Yesterday and Today. Mm. And I thought it was a great title, and I thought it was a great special, although I thought the commentator, in my opinion, was a little bit goofy, and he added a lot (laughs) of his own thoughts and his own ideas to the show. And there was another one called The Days in Their Lives, and I thought that one was pretty good. But, you know, also there was some sort of fluff that was put in that really was mindless. And quite frankly, he was talking about songs. I'm not even sure if he even knew what the song (laughs) really was about. Stuff Uh, that me and Paul do with our Jack White podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. No, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. I listen to your podcast. I think they're great. But anyway, well, that's aside the subject. Later on, I did think, wow, it'd be great if I took all my recordings instead of just keeping them in a box and doing nothing with them and throw them in the computer and start doing a day-by-day analysis, if you will, or maybe not even an analysis, a chronological order of what was going on at that time. Throughout their entire career, up until when I was stopping the show back in 1994, and I said, wow, it'd be great if I found, okay, Paul McCartney picked up a pencil on May 18th, 1965, (laughs) (laughs) and then I followed it up with stuff like that. So I actually took interviews of the band, as well as other folks, such as John's ex-wife, John's current wife, Yoko, other people that were with the Beatles at that time road managers, how songs were created. Rather than hearing years later, McCartney would have these revelations that he recorded this song for this purpose. But in reality, in those years, there's a lot of tape of him saying exactly why he recorded it. And I wanted to put that together because to me, that was the real truth because it really, it happened at that point And that's what he talked about, or others in the band talked about. Right, you're losing that hindsight, that reflection, that nostalgia factor, which colors everything. I mean, I've heard it often said in musicology, you know, usually the least trustworthy sources are the people themselves, but it features heavily in the anthology, for sure, and... You know, it would be interesting to hear McCartney's take from 1995 as opposed to 1975 as to why he wrote a song. Exactly. Right. That's how I felt about it. And that's why I made this special. And really, I just meant it for you folks, uh, you two boys, to listen to. And uh, for my pleasure, And as I had a long commute in New Jersey, I commuted half the state. So I figured, okay, I have to listen to something and satellite radio isn't invented yet. So (laughs) I I should do this. (laughs) This project really began in 2000, although as you say, it was a a build you had made James and I mixtapes that told stories just in the track selections alone mm-hmm. there there was one you made for us called talk in song which was just the back and forth songs of the beatles talking at each other over the years in the music and so anyway when when yesterday and today came out part of me was like well we know this story but when you actually listen to the stuff it painted a, an entirely new picture because it was a fresh take from that time and and part of the thing i i love so much about it is uh, you've passed down your collector gene to james and i obviously mm-hmm. through <laughs> james and i's various collections and things but one of the big questions i always wind up with is what are you going to do with it so i love this idea that you're like well 
I'm going to make something out of it. I have this bunch of stuff. Instead of having to just sit there, I like to make something. I find that very refreshing, actually. <laughs> yes. So you made a five-year-old James try and explain what Ubu Jubu meant to a <laughs> five-year-old class uh, <laughs> in preschool. Um, yeah, I guess I did. Uh, but, you know, it's really funny <laughs> that... Something like Ubu Jubu, if anyone knows what that is, it was a radio show Paul McCartney put on in the year 1995 or 6 or what have you. That really stemmed from Paul McCartney's radio shows that he used to do on tape in 1965. Mm -hmm. And perhaps maybe subconsciously I took the idea from him as he used to do radio shows. I always wanted to be in radio. I was thinking of going into the Institute of Audio Research in New York. Never did. Parents thought it was a bad idea. Uh, So I never really went. But yeah, so things derive from other things. So yes, if you got something out of all those tapes and CDs that I made over 110 hours listening audience... (laughs) (laughs) it's gonna be a long one everybody really get comfortable (laughs) you're in for a treat (laughs) but (laughs) but you know i'm glad that you boys got you know something out of it or or it influenced you in jack white your collections well that's yeah that's partly why we started this show is because we realized nothing like your special or anthology or anything like that existed for third band stuff and so they had just announced the acoustic recordings album and jameson had just started texting and says we should just make it no one's making it let's just make it but it was based on what you had been doing uh, all along and i think we do a little more editorializing than your show your show is a little more fact-based you don't really imprint your own feeling about what you think about the event it's more just what the event was right exactly uh you know it it can be a real bore for some, uh, kid you not, because <laughs> it's just... There's a, there's a tagline, <laughs> ringing endorsement. This may be a bore for some. But, you know something, never lose track of what it's really about, and it's all about the music anyway. Yeah. But it's what led up to those songs. John Lennon's life at home, what he was like when he came home from a tour with the Beatles, mm-hmm. you know, with all the screaming girls and this and that and the other, what he was really like. You know, he would spend days on end in his bedroom just sleeping and Cynthia his wife would say to his young son Julian who was about four or five you cannot go and wake him up because he was just so exhausted from the tour but once Lennon would get up two days later (laughs) he would um, the mind would switch on and once want to catch up on everything what was happening with his family and and that's the type of information you'll get. And that's, if I'm not mistaken, where I'm so tired comes from. Right? Uh, no, wait. Him listening to my special, he was so tired. No. <laughs> <laughs> came from, actually, that came from the Maharishi, but that's, that's part of the special. You'll just have to listen. Man, I got to re-listen to this special. <laughs> yeah, Dad, I, I, one of the... We wanted to make sure this got out there in the podcast world because there's a lot of Beatle podcasts I, I I know I listen to that just don't have the information you have. Now, oh, they're good. The podcasts that are on there, they're very good. They're just a different, different. twist. Mm-hmm. But I think you know it's fair to say what you're really doing here is archiving. You're you're mm-hmm. you're creating something that. I mean, it's kind of what Mark Lewison did when he was composing his books. Mm-hmm. 
which is just you know making sure to do the research. It's not content you're creating; it's it's content you're. I mean, you're you're crafting it more than more than anything. So there's a distinction there, and I think it's it's actually refreshing uh, in, in that regard. But there'll be a lot of music in this. It goes throughout their entire career, right through the solo careers, right? And um, it actually splits up the solo career where you would hear what John Lennon was doing on one day and what Paul McCartney was doing on that same day. Sometimes yeah. the two intertwine in their locations, and it's a lot of fun to hear that, of what happened. And like, oh, yeah, I saw him on the plane, and, you know, so right. there's a lot of things like that. The breakup is everyone has a masterpiece. If they're a writer or an artist, and you always think, oh, wow, this is a great book, or this is a great piece of work that I did and some of the other stuff is not as good well when you get to 1970 and 71 those I took great pride in making because it actually showed and you hear all the legal issues of why they broke up and what was happening and and uh, it's just amazing it's you know where else are you going to hear John Lennon say well George Harrison just left the Beatles Uh, who what do you think we're going to do Let's sell his instruments. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, I mean, some of this stuff is incredible. It's nuanced and it's messy and it's not the clean story they, they give you right. when they're thinking back on it because they don't want to go through the stuff. There's incredible highs you cover. There's also incredible lows. The breakup is, is an incredible low emotionally, although it's an interesting story. The death of John Lennon, an incredible low. When, when I heard that one, you know, it, was, it moved me when I heard that because it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. But it's interesting to hear and it's interesting to get the context and to really understand what happened, try and wrap your brain around it. But there are also those big positive moments. And you've also included, Dad, when you met the individual Beatles in the special. So there's you meeting George in there, your interactions with Paul, Ringo flipping you off. I mean, uh, giving yeah. you a sign. <laughs> so you get all that too. And, and you've met all of them except for Lennon, right? Len- Lennon is the only Never one. Never met Lennon, to. tried to meet him. Uh, just never had the opportunity. Uh, met Yoko, um, Sean, but never, never met Lennon. If you can all hang around for eight for 1987, I think it was 87, maybe it was 86. 87. Uh, you can get to the part where George Harrison saves the life of an unborn James. Uh, and <laughs> That's I, will, true. <laughs> I will make sure, uh, you know, I, I endorse that as an interesting uh, aspect of the story. That'll keep you on tender hooks for a little while. You can thank that for the creation of this Third Man podcast. But um, <laughs> uh, if I'm not mistaken, didn't you meet, uh, was it Sean you met as a baby or did you meet Julian as a baby? Uh, uh, Sean. Sean, okay. Dad was a baby for a time in the 80s. Dad, Dad was met, a yeah. small child. It was a Muppet baby situation. Uh, Jim Henson had his hand in it. It was very weird. Um. The show is going to be weekly, and it's going to be starting on February 5th. That is uh, a, a little less than a month from now. And uh, so please stay tuned for those details and check back in. Uh, we're going to include some links in the third men group as well so you guys can all check it out but we're really excited for this show this is a beautiful thing you put together and we're excited to be able to bring it to the world and get other people to listen to what has already been our type of music for several years already here here uh no thank you very much for um putting it out there it's something that i liked and uh i'm sure some people in the audience will will like and it tells a story and that's all it's supposed to do it just should, you know, it should make you think. It should influence you uh, to do other things in life. And um, if it does that, that would be great. 
Yeah. So if if any of you out there who are at all interested in what we do uh, with the Third Men podcast and talking about history of Third Men Records and Jack White and are at all interested in the Beatles or even 60s culture, I would recommend highly listening to Yesterday and Today. It's basically what me and Paul do, except without all the stupid voices, and it's mostly... Uh, it, we're not doing a Jackson in it. It's mostly uh, like a reference guide. It, it's, it's like something you can't take out from the library. You know, it's very referential, and it's a really interesting story. I highly recommend it. I haven't listened to it enough. Paul obviously knows a lot more than me. I need to brush up. And you know what? This is going to help me brush up on it, as I hope it is going to help you all brush up on it. So give it a listen. I highly, highly recommend it. Yes, indeed. So we're going to get back to the show here, and we will see you, Dad, in the Yesterday and Today podcast. Again, February 5th in a podcatcher near you. Thank you for joining us on the show today, Dad. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Yes, thank you. Yep. All right, let's get back to it. Let's get back to the show. All right, James, we got some shout outs here we're going to blow through, but first we'd like to thank our third person this week, Wayne Kaminsky. Thank yes. you, Dad. Wow, what in the Gewaldig Hoop Numers? Or as the <laughs> Americans might want to hear, wow, what a great bunch of songs. Oh, dear. Well, we're going to give some shout-outs here. And, you know, we've given a lot of Facebook love, but I think today we're going to do an all-Twitter edition of the shout-outs. So we would like to thank new people who are interacting with us on the social media, in this case on Twitter. We'd like to thank Daniel Danis. Thank you, Danis. Or Daniel at, D. Tompkins. Yeah, at WizardPeople1. We would like to thank The Visitor or at Andres Ruiz 2013. We'd like to thank Professori, who has been uh, interacting with us quite a, uh, a little bit here on the website for quite a while. You know, we'd like to thank Kerfuffle16 or Snapdragon. You know, you've, you've been liking us for a while. Thank you uh, for that. We really appreciate it. No Right Opinion has been uh, following us and, and liking us for quite a while. So thank you, No Right Opinion. And uh, Sandra Ward, we would also like to thank, or at SandyNurse70. We'd also like to thank Gene Steven or at Jay Honetica. There's a lot of words there, but thank you, Gene Steven. Thank you, Amy McKinnis or at CorpseFlower777, Caitlin Rudolph, Samantha Oakman, KTJ, A. Dan, Maddie Flood. Thank you, Maddie. A lot of people on Twitter, so thank you very much for interacting with us. And as always, we have our uh, tried and true always here interacting with us, talking to us, Facebook and tweeting all that business with us. We've got Kate McCoy, the bones of the operations. We've got Jeremy Riles keeping us on those rails. My oh me, we've got me oh my. And coming down the pike, we got Andre Ice Cold Lime. And oh, who do we got over here? It's Eileen. I see you over there, Corsano. <laughs> we got Callie Durga. Thank you, Callie, our third person in spirit every week. We got Adrian, the punk rock queen king. We've got Rain, Red Red Rain Prosper. Oh, and who's coming up down the track? Coming up down the track, it's Amy. <laughs> Heart, the heart of the operation and ha ha it's lol 2.0 coming on oh and breaking up neck and neck it's andrew eric andrew dodson over here eric andrew dodson is coming up right along david po 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 and oh we got sa franco pulling up the lead now sa franco <laughs> we don't know what that means and yvette wilkins wilkin on sunshine and we got brennan smith brennan and 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 and
whatever the hell we decided to call you last week. Brian Walter, be nicer to me. I like that one. And we got Brian Walter, be nicer to me. <laughs> okay, uh, well, I'll do this like an old-timey auctioneer. All right. Uh, then we got... <laughs> you get, did you get that? That was great. That was fantastic. If you'd like to interact with us on social media, you can go to facebook.com slash thirdmen. You can go to Twitter at thirdmencast. You can go to Tumblr, thirdmenpodcast.tumblr.com. You can go to thethirdmen.wordpress.com. You can send us an email, thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. You can visit Spreaker, the iHeartRadio page where we host the show. That's S-P-R-E-A-K-E-R.com. Search The Third Men. You can find us on YouTube and rate, review, and subscribe on iTunes. And and tell a friend. Please tell yes. a friend. Tell a friend about the show. Tell a friend. We'd love more people to come and listen, and only you guys out there know uh, what people want to listen to our weird, weird podcast. Mm. And if you have any questions uh, that you want to send in, we've got a few more, which was great. Thank you guys for sending some in. But if you have any listener questions about the band or about us or about whatever's on your mind, other bands, etc., please send those in to our, our email, uh, which is, uh, like Paul said, thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. And we'd also like to thank Sam Kubert and Tom Valenti for the help with our theme song, as well as Susanna Roundtree for the intros and outros of our program. And Paul, I think that'll do it. Yeah, it will do it. And hey, stay tuned for more announcements about the Yesterday and Today podcast. That is coming up, and we're going to have some exciting announcements about that very shortly. Yes. Stay tuned, folks. Uh, Excited about that one. Until next week, James, I will be building or trying to build a home so that I can find a toilet finally. (laughs) Uh, And as always, I'll be looking for a home near a bridge where I'll see somebody falling and laying down (laughs) next to me. See you next episode, everybody. <laughs> Good night. For more information or to contact the show, visit thethirdmen.wordpress.com or email at thirdmenpodcast at gmail.com. Also visit at thirdmencast on Twitter and search The Third Men on Facebook. See you next time. We'd like to thank, wow, I don't know if I could pronounce that. This is going well. <laughs> Get to this episode. Well, James, uh, before. I, oh. oh. But, but, sorry. Oh. No, continue. No, no, no. No, please. No. After you. <laughs> no, after you. <laughs> There are there are times when I truly love this podcast and this is one of those times. We'd like to thank our third person this week. The ice cream truck which is outside my window um, and I'm picking up. Thank you. Now you thought you heard a sound. No one knows around. This protector.
this. This Coke Zero. I, I call this Trump juice because I heard he drinks nothing but, uh, but, but Diet Coke. Maybe that's why they changed the formula. Oh, I'm feeling the anger now. Oh, that's good stuff. Mm. James, you're not Mexican. It's are almost you? <laughs> one quarter. Um... <laughs> Yeah, Bert. I literally just threw an Oreo at my face. It bounced off, fell on the floor, and um, and put it back again. And put it back again. <laughs> but I love this song. There are also times when I loathe this podcast. This is one of those times. <laughs> um. Et donc, il y a, euh, ce que j'ai dit il y a un an et demi en, en écrivant une, une recherche sur ce sujet-là, mmh. ce que je disais, c'est qu'il y a des groupes ici, dans la ville de Québec, qui ont peur.